Our first reading comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 18. So Ahab sent word to all the people of Israel, and he assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Then Elijah said to all the people, How long will you stagger around on two crutches? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people did not answer him a single word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only one left of the Lord's prophets, but the prophets of Baal total 450 men. Provide two bulls for us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it up and place it on the firewood. But they are not to light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the firewood, but I will not light the fire. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people said, This proposal is good. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and you go first, because there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull which had been given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us. But there was not a sound. No one answered. So they staggered around the altar which they had made. When noon came, Elijah mocked them. Shout louder. He is a god, isn't he? He may be deep in thought, or busy, or on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and will wake up. So they cried out with a loud voice, and according to their practice, they cut themselves with daggers and spears until their blood flowed. Afternoon, they kept up a prophetic frenzy until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. There was no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. So they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come and proclaimed, You shall be Israel. He built the stones into an altar in the name of the Lord. Around it he made a trench big enough to hold about twenty-five pounds of seed. He arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, and placed it on the wood. Then he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it again. So they did it again. Then he said, Do it a third time. So they did it a third time. The water flowed all around the altar. It even filled the trench. When the time of the evening sacrifice had arrived, Elijah the prophet stood up and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be made known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things by your word. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you. Fire from the Lord fell on the sacrifice, and on the wood, the stones, and the dirt. It even licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell on their knees and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, and do not let a single one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon River and slaughtered them there. O Lord, have mercy on us. 
Our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter. After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, who were waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel would go down at a certain times into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man was there who had been sick for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been sick a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He picked up his mat and walked. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews told the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. You are not permitted to carry your mat. He answered them, The one who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who told you? Pick it up and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Look, you are well now. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went back and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So the Jews began to persecute Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working right up to the present time, and I am working too. This is why the Jews tried all the more to kill him, because he was not merely breaking the Sabbath, but was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. O Lord, have mercy on us. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This evening, we continue to walk through the Ten Commandments of our Lord by looking at the Second and the Third Commandments, which are, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Or, to say it another way, you shall sanctify the holy day. These commandments flow from the first, and together with it, make up the first table of the law. That is, they are the commandments which deal primarily with our relationship to God. They are the commandments that are summed up by, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. Knowing and trusting in the Lord as God, according to the first commandment, now we naturally turn to his name and his gifts. Our psalm this evening shows the relationship to the first and highlights these two commandments when it says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The last phrase, you have exalted above all things your name and your word, tie in especially with these two commandments. That is because these two things, God's name and his word, are the gifts of God governed by the second and third commandments. 
God has exalted above all things his name. So let us not misuse it, but use it properly. For if we can misuse a thing, that means it has a proper use. Similarly, the essence of the third commandment of sanctifying the holy day is found in the use and reception of God's word. For it is God's word which sanctifies, that is, makes holy. Oh, what blessings come from the name of God, brothers and sisters. What blessings come from calling him Father, that we may come to him at all times, both in times of need and in times of plenty. Or as we say in the litany, in all time of our tribulation and in all time of our prosperity. He bids us come to him as children come to their dear father. What a blessing and joy. And what blessings, brothers and sisters, come from the proper use of the name of Jesus. For Jesus means the Lord's salvation, and that is who he is, the Savior. The name of Jesus is sweet and precious, and in faith when we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, he is Jesus for you. Oh, what blessings come from the name of the Lord, that we may always call upon him. You have exalted above all things, O Lord, your name. And what blessings come from his word. For God's word is filled with great and rich promises of life and eternal salvation in Jesus by grace through faith. What blessings come from meditating upon it, considering it, hearing and reading it. For it is no ordinary, excuse me, it is no ordinary word, but God's word. And his Holy Spirit accompanies the word so that he may work in us, creating and sustaining faith, convicting us of sin, sanctifying us, teaching and showing us his will, guiding us in our ways, confirming our faith and deepening our trust and reliance on God our Savior. This is but the tip of the iceberg of the blessings which our Lord bestows upon us by his word. O Lord, you are gracious, for you have exalted above all things your word. And since these things are such wonderful gifts of God, and he himself has exalted them so highly, let us as his Christians, that is, as his people whom he has redeemed from sin and death and hell by the precious blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, pay careful attention to our walk, lest we break these commandments and provoke our Lord to anger. For when we misuse the name of God, we not only sin against him, but we bring him to shame before others, and so encourage others to sin by our sin, encouraging them by our actions to blaspheme God and sin themselves. And so what is it to misuse God's name? The small catechism says we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name. Now this evening I'm going to leave aside the part about satanic arts, as I trust from knowing you that you are not dabbling in those. But cursing, as our commandment says, is not cussing, though we should not do that for other reasons, as we will hear as we continue through this Lenten study. But cursing is invoking God to curse another, to kill another, or to bring ruin or misfortune on another. Likewise, we should not swear easily. And again, this just isn't another way of saying cussing, 
but that is invoking God's name as proof of something. For we are weak, and using God's name as a surety when we cannot be sure of ourselves brings dishonor on God when we fail. False swearing is even worse. That is, using God's name to cover a lie, to hide the truth, or to cover for us when we have no intention of keeping such a vow or oath. Such a one who has done something and when is confronted and says, I swear I didn't, that is falsely swearing. The same as just if one were to perjure themselves in court, to lie under oath for their own sake or the sake of another. Similarly, using God's name to cover for our behavior, especially when it's sinful, or to justify our actions in our or others' sight is misusing God's name. And this is something that requires special attention, I think, because it's quite common in the greater Christian parlance and the greater Christian culture. But it's also important because it often brings unnecessary shame on God's name. For example, a person or ministry cheating on their taxes may say, this will allow me to have more money to give to the church or to the poor. This is lying and deceiving in God's name and using his name to cover for sin. Because God said, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and so on. Likewise, if a husband or a wife is to say, I feel God is saying, or I feel it is God's will that I leave my spouse for another person, I am certain that this other person is the one that God really wants me to be with. This is using God's name to justify adultery when God said, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or if a woman were to say, I feel God is calling me to ordained ministry. No, that is also not God, but using God's name to justify disobedience when he expressly commanded, I do not permit a woman to teach. Or if a widow or widower were to say to me, usually, marry us in secret, pastor, so that we do not lose our deceased spouse's pension. God would want us to be happy and have the extra money. No, God has given that authority to the earthly rulers on his behalf to administer. To do such a thing, to marry someone in secret, is to use God's name to cover for our sin. Many more examples could be made up to show this type of behavior, especially regarding sins of the sixth and seventh commandment, as those seem to be the ones we most want to cover with God's name. But they all bring God's name into disrepute when we use it to cover for sin. Unbelievers easily see what we are doing, and they mock God because of us. Finally, false doctrine is the most egregious use, or abuse, sorry, of God's name. For it uses God's name to cover for lies and the twisting of Scripture, speaking for God what he has not spoken, putting words in his mouth, lying and deceiving others in God's name, usually for monetary enrichment, and claiming God's approval of what he has not approved. False doctrine is not a little thing. It's not unimportant. It's a serious breaking of the second commandment, 
teaching, giving heed to supporting and promoting false doctrine is misusing God's name. The proper use, then, is as we said before, that we call upon God's name in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. He has given us his name so that we may call upon him, so that we may turn to him in every trouble, knowing that he will hear us and deliver us. On the day I called, you answered me, the psalm said, and my strength of soul you increased. Because he is faithful and gracious, he is steadfast in love and rich in mercy. He has given us his name so that we may be saved, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, the Lord's salvation is Jesus for you when you call upon him in faith. So too are we to use his name properly to give him thanks for all of his gifts, for his salvation, for his gifts of daily bread, for supplying of every need of body and soul for this life and the next. We have his name that we may swear properly, that is, for the promotion of truth and good and the benefit of our neighbor in service of the truth. Such swearing occurs in court as a truthful witness, or when we make certain vows as Christians, such as my ordination vow, where I swore to teach nothing but the truth of God's word for your benefit. We have his name to praise him, to glorify him for all he's done, and to spread the gospel of his salvation. And this ties us to our third commandment, which means, in the simplest terms, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching or his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. The Sabbath, that is, the seventh day, commanded as a day of rest, was given strictly to the people of the Old Testament only in its outer observance. This is because it was to be a day of rest to allow all people and all animals an opportunity for recuperation and rest, and to point towards the great Sabbath rest, which we have in Jesus Christ. Thus, the heart of the second commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, has to do with how we use God's word, for it is God's word which makes us holy. Since we no longer have a divinely commanded day of rest or gathering together, we meet on Sunday because it is the day when most people rest from their labors and because it's the day our Lord Jesus rose again from the dead in triumph. And so every day is sanctified or not, depending on how it is spent in relation to God's word. For it is God's word which sanctifies. As St. Paul said, for everything is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So let us not neglect the hearing of God's word, especially on days which we have set aside that we may do so. Neglecting the hearing of God's word and neglecting the gathering of the saints dishonors the word of God, which he has exalted above all things and which he uses to sanctify us also. All excuses fail in the face of that. Whether it's guests and visitors, how could that prevent us? Rather, it gives us an opportunity to invite them with us to gladly hear God's saving word. Or whether it's time with family, how can spending time be any better than growing as a family, hearing God's word together? Or quality time, for how is time better spent than at the feet of Jesus? Or the need for rest, 
What is more restful than God coming to us to refresh us by his word? God's word, which he delivers by its reading, preaching, and the sacraments, is the life bread of the Christian. If we do not have it, we will starve. For that reason, we should not treat it as any ordinary word, or merely attend for the sake of attending without paying attention to his word and taking it to heart. Rather, we should rejoice. Rejoice at the time we have with his word, not only on Sundays or Wednesdays, but on every day. For he communicates his will, his salvation, and his Holy Spirit through his word. He sanctifies us and our days and our gatherings by it and its fruitful use. And he will cause it to bring forth fruit when it is attended to earnestly. For his word will not return to him void. His word produces faith, brings forth the fruit of faith, good works, and love. His word brings the promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And more than that, it communicates what it promises when it is received in faith. It doesn't only tell us of salvation, life, and forgiveness, but it grants it to those who believe it. So let us gladly study, meditate upon his word, attend to it, hear it earnestly, and take it to heart. For he works through it for our good, and because he has exalted it above all things. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Jewish leaders often falsely accused Jesus of breaking this commandment. For he did not abide by the additional strictures which they had added to the divine command. He did not follow the additions, but instead he followed the commandment both to the letter and in its spirit. Was there a command from God against healing on the Sabbath, as Jesus was often accused of doing and breaking? No. Was there a command against being healed and then taking up your bed on which one lay? No, certainly not. Our Lord did not sin when he told the man at the pool of Bethesda, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He did not sin when he said, My father is working right up to the present time, and I am working too. No, he was testifying to the truth, using God's name to testify to the truth that he was equal with God, because he was the Son of God incarnate. And in addition, when he healed on the Sabbath, he demonstrated the heart of the Sabbath, that the true Sabbath is resting from any claim to justify ourselves and resting in the work of Christ. When we gather to hear God's word and receive the sacraments, to pray, praise, give thanks, and to call upon God on behalf of those who suffer trouble, we see that the Father is working and Jesus is working too. He is working through his word and his Holy Spirit to heal us of our infirmities of body and soul, preparing us for the time when we are raised from the dead and will be fully healed as we enter into our eternal Sabbath rest. He is working in forgiving our sins by his grace and for the sake of his Son, so that nothing worse, that is, the punishments of hell, happen to us, but rather being forgiven of all of our sins, we may enjoy eternal life with him. He is working in sanctifying us, making us holy as he is holy, so that as we grow in sanctification by his grace and by his working in us, we may see him as he is when he appears at the end, and so find rest for our souls. May God grant this to us all. Amen. 
And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.